You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by plant biologist Kareen Marshall from uh, Plant and Microbial Biology, correct? Mm -hmm. Welcome. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So that's its own department separate from like traditional biology, right? Yeah, we're um, in the College of Natural Resources. And so it's nice because it's a smaller department with a lot more focus on the students. I mean, IB is great too in LNS, <laughs> yeah. but we're, we're a close-knit group. <laughs> nice. Okay, so um, what... What's a microbe? Plant. It's plant and microbial biology. Mm-hmm. So those are two different things. I guess I don't know how they're related. Yeah. So plants is plants in the classical sense of what you think of. And then microbiology is everything from a bacteria or a fungus or an algae, for example, which is um, algae are really closely related to plants because they photosynthesize, whereas like a fungus is actually more closely related to a human. So very different. But um, we combine plant and microbe under the same department, so there's a lot of collaboration and just um, a big range of study and opportunity for students. And and you are actually a Golden Bear alum, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So what department were you in as an undergrad here at Berkeley? <laughs> I was also in the plant and microbial biology. So you just you loved it there. You never wanted yeah. to leave. I'm a product of Cal Berkeley. <laughs> nice. Hey, so, that's yeah. a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was your undergrad experience like? Did you, you studied similar types of things? or? Um, yeah, so it was uh, genetics and plant biology. And I studied all the core classes, which is every sort of plant biology related thing. Um, and then I also did a little bit of undergraduate research in a Tassos Mellis's lab, which studies how bacteria and algae can produce hydrogen in certain cases and how that hydrogen could be used as a biofuel. And they do a lot of other stuff too, but they do a lot of stuff with photosynthesis. But I was in on a project studying that. So studying biofuel, Mm -hmm. is that like petroleum replacements? Well, not in this lab, in the Mellis lab, but I actually studied that a little bit later on after I graduated from from Berkeley as an undergraduate. So what sort of biofuel can hydrogen be involved in? So hydrogen obviously can, I mean, I'm not a physics person, but it can be used as a as a fuel to run certain engines because it's combustible. So the concept that algae or bacteria can make this for free um, rather than splitting water, which is how you would a lot of times think of producing uh, hydrogen, is cool because you just grow these little organisms and you can capture any algae that they bubble out. I mean hydrogen. And then that hydrogen could be used as a fuel. So is that what you were doing, just like growing algae? Yeah, I was growing algae. I was doing, the thing with science is that it sounds super fancy and simple, but the truth is, is there's a lot of little menial labor things that uh, usually an undergrad does, but it gets them prepared for doing the really cool stuff in the future. And you obviously liked algae because you stuck with it uh, after you graduated. Mm -hmm. Yep, I did. I uh, worked at a little startup company that was trying to grow algae to then harvest it and harvest the oil. This Now it was the oil because algae can also produce a lot of oil. 
that has been an interest for using that as an alternative biodiesel. So rather than hydrogen, this is actual oil. And I worked in that startup company for a little while and did some cool science and worked with algae. So what's so special about algae? I mean, why, like, why can't they just use regular old plants for this? Well, I would say it's just uh, in simplest form, it's just that they are... Uh, they have an ability to kind of produce more oil, whereas plants have a lot more like cellula- or cellulose, the cell wall, so it's harder to harvest, and they don't make as much oil. But some plants do. For example, there is biofuels from uh, sunflower seed oil. So we have looked into plants, but then there's an interest in algae, and also because algae are a little bit easier to grow than plants, because you can just grow them in these big vats of water and nutrients and then harvest them, whereas plants you have to put out in a big old field, and that's land that could be used for food. So so just for the audience, algae is, is kind of like that green slimy stuff you can see on mm-hmm. lakes, and and is it, there's ocean algae as well? Yeah. Oh, algae are extremely diverse, so... Um, I'm more of a, I know less about the diversity of algae, but uh, there is so many of them and they are everywhere. Yeah, no, you, you were going to say you're more of a plant person? Mm-hmm. Now I'm a little bit, technically my training and my uh, new career is more um, in plants, uh, which are different. Yeah. Okay. I can't wait to hear more about that. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson and this is The Graduates interview talk show today. I'm joined by plant and algae biologist Corrine Marshall, although more of a plant person now. <laughs> so uh, why is that? You just couldn't stay away or? Yeah, probably. Probably. Um, let's see. I I always loved um, plants and I grew up in a big, uh, like my mom was a plant breeder. My dad was a nursery grower of plants. But I didn't realize how much I love science until I was in high school. And then kind of things fell into place where I realized not only am I really good at science, but I find it really interesting. And then I don't really like blood and animals, and I think plants are super cool. So it all came together where I decided to study plant biology. And ever since I have started that, I just completely have fallen in love with plants and how unique they are, how much they do for our world and how interesting they are to study. And you have grown plants yourself, right? That's one of your mm-hmm. jobs even, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done all kind of ranges of plant-related things. Can you tell us a little bit about your bulb uh, research? Yeah. So after I worked at that algae startup biofuel company, I went and worked for this huge international bulb growing company. And bulbs, not light bulbs, but bulbs such as calla lilies or tulips or begonias. And so with bulbs, there's a whole life cycle where you really had to study the way they are harvested and the environment they grow in and how you store them. So I did a huge research and a research project on the growth and development of these different plants and how to basically increase their propagation. So make them grow better and make them look prettier so that customers could then want to buy them. 
Nice. And what about for fun? You must grow a little for fun. Yeah. So I love to garden. And as I said, my family is big in plants. My dad is a nursery grower and my mom was on a a family of, of farmers. So she grew up a farmer and I always went there. So my love of plants is not just science. It's also just enjoying them and growing them and, um, being around them. And it helps uh, growing up in California, right, where there's a lot of floral diversity. Yes, so much diversity and um, just things that are so unique plant-wise are in California. I mean, we have the tallest tree in the world, the biggest tree in the world, and the oldest tree in the world right in this state. So very cool. Really cool. Uh, So speaking of sort of unique things, your work now, it's it's pretty unique. I mean... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're working on the circadian rhythm. Yeah, circadian, circadian rhythm. clock. Uh-huh. Circadian clock, I can say it. Uh-huh. Um, I mostly hear about that in relation to people and, like, sleep cycles. Mm-hmm. But apparently people are not the only people. People are not the only animals or life at all uh-huh. that have a circadian rhythm. Yeah, so um, the circadian clock is just this biological clock, and that just means that at certain times of the day, certain processes happen. And that is actually true for all living organisms. Everything we know has a clock. And that makes sense because biology evolved in the world and this earth is not static. It's never always light or always dark. So as a result, evolution made it so that they uh, there's a mechanism to deal with this ever-changing environment. And that's the circadian clock. So The clock just controls, as I said, when to do certain biological things. With people, it's like when to sleep. With plants, the obvious one one is when to do photosynthesis, when to, you know, turn on all your machinery, all your proteins, spend all this energy preparing for the lights to come on and uh, for them to do photosynthesis to get make food and you don't want to or the plants don't want to do that at night because that would just be a waste because there is no sunlight so um, as a result they have this circadian clock which controls it and it actually controls everything I mean we found that the circadian clock controls a huge uh, majority of the genome so like all the genes in the plant genome or even you know humans is controlled by this clock directly so it's a it's a big hub to control a lot of things and I'm studying that to know more about it. So how can it how can the circadian clock control genes and gene expression? You usually have a core clock. So it's uh I'm going to try to not make this too complicated. The core set of genes which is like the timekeeper. So there's they're the ones creating the time. And then those downstream will like attach to certain genes. So genes can turn on because of what we call promoters. And there are these little sequences above the genes. And it's kind of like a light switch, we'll say. And it says, turn it on or off. So the timekeeper, the main hub, can then go and attach to the light switch and say, on or off. And so if it's the nighttime, you turn off your photosynthesis genes and in the morning when the sun's about to rise because that's it too it anticipates um, when it will be morning then it turns them back on so 
I guess when a lot of people think about genes, they think about maybe development or like the very first stages of life mm-hmm. forming in a new generation. But you're saying that genes actually turn on and off all the time, pretty much like every day. Oh, yeah. Every second. You know, you you scratch yourself and you have a whole slew of genes that are happening um, that turn on and off immediately. So it's and- a Everything is controlled really by genes and then the proteins they make. And it's usually some are really slow to react and be processed and some are really fast. And this is also localized, right? So this is happening in like every single cell has DNA. So every single cell has genes that can be turned on and off and maybe different from the cell that's next door. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So. So uh, how do you go about studying this sort of thing? I mean, is this is this a sort of like lab coat, like extraction work or? Yeah, honestly, it is. And it depends what kind of research and uh, what organism you're using. So, you know, say you were studying the circadian clock in like bacteria, you're mostly going to be under like a little Petri dish. But if you're doing it like in corn, um, which is um, one of something my lab does is we look at the circadian clock in corn, then that's out in the field. But then in the end, we take whatever plant we grew, and then it is a lot of lab coat looking at the DNA, the RNA, the level of gene expression, and just a lot of molecular biology techniques is what you say um, to study this. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, right? <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, it's awesome. fun. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit more about the circadian clock. You mentioned that all living things have it, and it's important. What what can go wrong with it? And is it just all about food uh, for everybody? Or No. In, well, first of all, if any of you have ever traveled, then you know what jet lag is like. And jet lag, even an hour can feel pretty crappy, but then say it's, you know, you go to Japan, it feels awful. You feel really bad for a couple days because that's your circadian clock. It's resetting to the new environment. So it's getting new signals from the environment, such as light or temperature, and saying, oh, I thought it was the nighttime, but turns out it's actually the morning time. And so your whole biology is shifting. And while it's readjusting, you feel so bad because all your timing is off. And so um, that's because not only does the clock control things like food, and but it also controls a lot of uh, everything, really. So in plants, other interesting examples are um, plants can anticipate pathogen attack. So, for example, fungi that are pathogenic, so that infect the plants, we'll say, they release certain spores to infect the plants in the morning. So the clock, as a result, has the ability in plants to turn on the plant immune system to be really strong in the morning when the fungi are about to attack, and then they can fight the pathogens better. So is this a learned response, though, or is this just like an innate biological response? It is a learned response, yes. It is. Um, the, that's actually specifically what I study, is how does the clock learn about um, the environment from the environment, what time of day it is. So, uh, for example, I'm studying gene. I'm trying to discover genes that sense the environment and specifically temperature, and how that is then that information is transmitted to the circadian clock, the timekeeper, which then downstream says, okay, this is how we should modify 
the organism, how the organism responds. So I'm on the search for new genes <laughs> right now. Do you have any you can tell us about? Or <laughs> Yeah, I have this really uh, cool gene called warp two. And nice. it's, yes, uh, how, what's the word? Um, it's a relation to Star Trek, like time warp. warp. <laughs> oh my gosh, nice. <laughs> so um, warp two is this mutant I have. So a mutant means that in order to study discover new genes, what we do is we break them. So we break them and then see what went wrong. And so we broke some genes and looked at, okay, what's wrong? And in warp two, warp two, the gene itself is broken. And plants themselves, they don't respond to temperature the way they should. So you give them um, temperature cycles in which it's warm in the day and cool at night. That's the normal way that a clock usually senses. So if you give this, they aren't able to appropriately respond to it. So plants are confused by temperature cycles when this one gene is broken. And so then I'm now studying how this gene is important for the clock. So this might be a little broad, but when you talk about like adjusting to temperatures, changes, mm -hmm. you know, I immediately think of climate change. It's a big issue right now. Does this mean that plants and animals are able to just like respond to new temperatures quickly? Or do you mm -hmm. think that this sort of this rhythm won't be able to compensate with such dramatic changes? Yeah, so that's a great um, observation because that's one of the reasons why we're looking at this question. So the clock is really important in dealing with changes in ch temperature, which makes sense because if it's cold, usually, you know, things slow down. So your biology might slow down. And then if it's warm, things will speed up. But because of the circadian clock, you're able to always keep things at the same rate, really, when it comes to timing of processes. And I say you, but I mean all biological things are able to compensate for these changes in temperature. And so um, by studying new genes that may affect that temperature compensation, that ability to deal with temperature, we are studying and thinking about how well these plants are going to be able to respond to global climate changes. Will they always be able to deal with all of a sudden the world becoming X amount of degrees warmer in general or colder? And how will that change, you know, which crops we can grow um, and where and the diversity of plants? Maybe in a couple years we'll be able to not have any more of this, this one type of plant in the wild because they can't deal with the change in temperature. Okay. Well, if we're going to do broad questions, I'll ask you another one. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you say all life on Earth shares this circadian clock, does that what does that mean in terms of the evolution of the clock? It must have been a long, long time ago. Yes, it was a long, long time ago. And um, interestingly, the clock, like we call it kind of the clock like pattern, the way the the genes are fed back on each other is very similar in all organisms, but the actual genes themselves are different. Basically, you can compare a gene in a plant to one in an animal and see if they're similar. And the clock genes are very different, which is means that the clock evolved multiple times, but um, but the overall pattern is really similar. So. Yeah. So it's not it's not necessarily something that evolved a long, long time ago as an ancestral trait, mm -hmm. but you're saying it it probably evolved convergently, so mm -hmm. multiple yeah. different times 
coming to the same sort of clock. Yeah, exactly. The genes are not what you call homologous. Um, They're not completely equivalent. And, you know, it's kind of there's not a full understanding of how the clock evolved in comparison to everything, but it is something that wasn't just didn't just happen once. It was modified many times over evolutionary time. And generally, we can say that that when something happens over and over again like that convergently, we can say it's a sign that it's very adaptive or helpful Mm -hmm. for those organisms because so many different organisms wouldn't get that trait if it wasn't helping them somehow. Yeah, exactly. There's a huge selective pressure to have a circadian clock. Awesome. Awesome. Except for in... Except for what? (laughs) um, It is really interesting that there's a study that caribou in... um, like the, I guess, where would it be? In the north or the, the south? I think it's the, the north. north. Yeah. So north, in the uh, when it's wintertime and it's always like nighttime, they lose their circadian clock. So they don't have a clock saying it's daytime and nighttime. So in the wintertime, they, they lose that. They just like sleep whenever? Yeah. Pretty and much like I whenever. wish <laughs> my life was. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So that's cool too, evolutionary-wise. Very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just tuning in, you are tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I'm joined by plant biologist Kareen Marshall in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology, mm-hmm. yes, PMB. And uh, we've been hearing all about her work, current work on circadian clocks and past work on algae biofuels. You mentioned to me that some of your current work overlaps with this world of genetically modified organisms, GMOs. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that for us a little? Yeah. So that's, you know, the classic thing that someone thinks of when they meet a plant biologist is, ah, you're here to make GMOs. And it's true. I make GMOs. That's how I study my plants is by fiddling with the genes and I mean that in the best of ways. Like, it's great. We have these beautiful molecular biology techniques to be able to study things. And then on top of that, they can sometimes be used beneficially to improve certain crops. And so as a plant biologist, it's really, I think, um, we are on a separate side in terms of the what we study than what, you know, Monsanto is making Roundup Ready and then all the socioeconomic problems with that model. So, um, you know, right now in this, especially in California, there's a lot of concern over the health of GMOs and then also just the way this system of agriculture is favoring big conventional farming versus, you know, the small farmer and uh, and also mostly sustainable agriculture practices. And I think that's a big concern. And the biggest problem is actually how we as society approach food. But then, of course, I understand that people want to understand GMOs and they want to know how they're made, how they affect people. And uh, as a plant biologist, one of my main goals is to be able to talk to the public, um, people who aren't expert scientists, and be able to explain that not all GMOs are equal. And yes, they need to be studied, but there is a lot of opportunity for them to be used beneficially, particularly if the socioeconomic aspect of it is done correctly. Okay, so there are good GMOs. Yeah. Yeah, now's your chance. I mean, preach <laughs> preach it. Preach it, girl. Tell us. Uh... <laughs> preach. Um, well, you know, just there's, for example, 
papaya. Papaya is about to be wiped out. And bananas. Imagine if this world had no bananas. You know, we'd probably eat another fruit, but the truth is, is bananas are a really important part of、um, our food, what we eat. And we could use GMOs to create a new banana. And that, so bananas are about to be wiped up because we only have one type of banana that can grow. And、um, there are pathogens that are attacking the banana. And pretty soon, The banana plants are not, you know, evolutionarily wise, the pathogen is going to get stronger and stronger, and the banana plant will have nothing to fight that pathogen. So, the use of GMOs could be to find a banana plant that is resistant to those pathogens, and then we could keep growing bananas. So, and these are like the dole bananas, like,、mm-hmm. a, you know, the ones we get here in the US. I mean, there are other types of bananas in the world, but they're just not great for、uh, transport or for growing here in the US. Yeah. So,、exactly. our classic yellow Banana is losing the nuclear arms race. Yep, they are.、Mm. And so, you know, that's one example. And then obviously, there is the aspect of, say, making a crop that is more drought tolerant so that they, if it gets really dry, they're not going to all die immediately.、Um, so that's really interesting. And then obviously, people are very interested in finding crops that are mo- more resistant to certain pests. So,、um, That's another big field in terms of、uh, study for GMOs and potentially good applications because you would use less pesticides. And currently, the, one of the biggest GMOs is、uh, BT corn, which is、um, corn that, if eaten by the corn borer、um, insect, they die,、um, those insects, those pathogens. And so that's already being used a lot, but it is owned by a big. Um, company Monsanto, which I don't know how far I want to get into the socioeconomic、um, concerns with Monsanto owning、um, such a big and important、uh, crop in this country and in the whole world. But those applications can be beneficial, they really can. And, you know, I think the, the key thing is that people can't, not everything you read is correct. And there has to be a lot better communication by the scientific community on the truth of GMOs and the potential health and environmental concerns. But then, likewise,、um, the public and people who are concerned with it should listen and,、uh, and be open to discussion, not immediately assume that everything.、Uh, A plant biologist does is, is wrong. <laughs> no, that's great.、Uh-huh. <laughs> so, besides GMOs, are there other like, issues of major concern in your field or that the public should know about? So, you know, something I think is probably the most important thing I will give to this society is just education. And I think science is a great way not only to educate the new people of the world, the younger generation, but it's also a great way to support the economy because our lab, you know, I have a PI and then there's a couple grad students and sometimes a postdoc, and we're like a small business. And then as running through our business, quote unquote, is、um, these undergraduates who come and help us. And, We teach them and we give them skills to prepare them for their future. And、um, likewise, my PI is preparing me with skills、uh, to then become a better scientist and further my career. So, you know, science in general is a great way to educate people. And I think that's a really important thing that people can't forget. 
when wondering why do we do this science? Like, why do we care about plant circadian clocks? Why do we care about, you know, water on Mars? And it's not just the interesting aspect of it. It's also we are providing education to these, you know, new scientists of the world. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. So what do you recommend for undergrads who want to get involved in science and research? Um, I recommend not being afraid to ask your GSI for help or advice and just say, hey, I'm really interested in getting some lab experience and uh, trying something new. And trust me, all GSIs are happy to have someone come and help them with their project, and uh, especially if you show enthusiasm. So don't be afraid that you don't know enough or that they don't have enough time. Just go to a professor, go to a GSI and say, I want to do something new, and uh, can you help me? And they will want to help you. And what about the public? Are, Are there resources for them to learn more about you know, these arguments on GMOs or just like basic plant biology? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I think that scientists need to be a little bit better at actually giving that opportunity to open discussion with the community about science concerns. Um, so that's one of the things I'd like to do as a graduate student. But already there are things, for example, we just had the Bay Area Science Festival And there was a lot of, you know, panels of speakers and a lot of uh, cool events in which you could go and do science and learn about science and hear these great stories. And, yeah, I, I would say also just finding a scientist and talking to them about it. And, uh, and obviously there are some community things you can do. Yeah, speaking of the community, I know you're you're pretty involved with the Bay Area Scientists in Schools, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what that program is? That is um, a program in which graduate students um, or postdocs, um, anyone who works in upper science level in academia, goes to these schools in the Bay Area, usually elementary schools, and we do science experiments as kind of a lesson plan for science and we work with kids. And so, for example, we developed a lesson plan on how plants adapt to different environments, why plants can grow in the desert versus in the rainforest, and what makes them specially able to grow there. And so we go to an elementary school, and that's um, like five grad students, and we teach this lesson. And I think it's great because one, I love it. I love to work with kids, and I love to talk about science. And then two, It's good for um, the teacher because these teachers are expected to teach, you know, reading, writing, math, and science, and and art, of course. And uh, that's a lot to expect from someone, especially if they aren't very comfortable in it. So we get to kind of supplement their their teaching. That's great. That sounds like a great program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's actually a lot of great programs for scientists to go out in the community, and I would highly recommend graduate students to do that. Just because it's fun. Not only is it good to, you know, teach these kids, but it's also fun for you to step away from your research. Yeah, and it's good to learn different ways to talk about your research. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't just speak in jargon all the time. Yeah, yeah. And kids have this, like, great ability to not have preconceived ideas. So they just ask the great questions. And you're like, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that in a long time. (laughs) So that's great. Good. Well, I think we're just about wrapping up here. Do you have any last words for the audience? Um, 
yeah, you know, I would say that all of you who think science is great but have only ever thought of how awesome animals are, take a second to think about how awesome plants are because there are these great organisms that are all around you and they're giving you the air you breathe. And uh, I kind of think of them as the silent warriors of the planet. They just sit there and pump out oxygen for us and clean out the CO2. And uh, it's always good to think about how important they are and how we can preserve them. So by either going on a hike and noticing them or planting them in your garden, plants are great. So don't forget them. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent words of advice from Corrine Marshall. Okay, uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us here on The Graduates. You've been tuned in to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this has been another fantastic episode of The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their research here on campus and around the world. Today I've been joined by plant biologist Corrine Marshall telling us about her past work with algae biofuels and her current work with plant circadian clocks and uh, GMOs, which are not necessarily an evil thing, depends on the context, so good to look into. And thank you again, Corrine, for being here. Thank you. Not a problem. (laughs) Uh, Not a problem. So we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates here on CalEx, Tuesday at 9 a.m. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX, Berkeley.